great, and we will begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive in because we've got a lot to do again. So let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. I thank you for each person who's made the effort in the midst of a busy and crazy week to get here. Lord, we pray that you would quiet our hearts and that you would sharpen our minds, that we might be able to hear from the works of your servant, C.S. Lewis, in ways that would point us to the truth of your scripture and the truth of your kingdom and help us to follow you more closely. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to be doing tonight is we're going to make a little bit of a turn uh, away from Lewis's theology of friendship and into Lewis's theology of story. And one of the things that you will notice as we go through this class is that although it would be nice to have each one of these themes set in its own little box, uh, in fact, they overlap with each other a lot. And that is a sign of the fact that, as we've said before, Lewis was a thoroughly converted man. And so all of these different areas, he would think about how they impacted other parts of his life and other parts of his theology. So they really are woven together like a tapestry. So I wanted to do a quick review of what Lewis said about friendship. And I would commend to you, if you were not here last week, uh, to go back and listen to that look at the PowerPoint, because Lewis's theology of friendship undergirds almost everything that we're going to be looking at in the rest of this course. And just a couple of observations um, from what we looked at last time about characteristics of Lewis's friendships. And part of the reason this is so very important is that, as we talked about, we're living in a culture where friendship is in crisis, where people have lost the art of conversation, people are lonelier and more alienated than at any time since those kinds of things have been measured by psychologists. And we talked about the UK has recently appointed a minister of loneliness. So this, this is uh, really important for our culture and important for us as Christians to take a step back and think, are we living Christianly in the way that we handle our friendships, or are we just falling into the model of the world? So Lewis had friends of many ages and backgrounds. Um, he had friends who were really old in, in their 80s when he was a young man. He had friends that were his former students who were 40 years younger than he was. He had friends who were women, friends who were men, friends who were Christians, friends who were Hindus, friends that were butchers, friends that were part of the aristocracy. He didn't care where you came from. Uh, he was completely humble and had this wide variety of friends. He had a core of deeply Christian friends to whom he was deeply committed. And we talked about one of the things that's so remarkable is Lewis is one of the busiest men in Oxford. Fabulously popular lecturer, uh, lots of classes that he was teaching day by day, Students he was tutoring. He had a lot of responsibilities at home, caring for an alcoholic brother and the mother of his former uh, classmate who had died in World War I that he had taken into his home. Uh, and yet, in the midst of that, he spent two to three hours every Friday afternoon with his spiritual advisor where he would pray and talk deeply with his friend about their lives then he would spend one entire morning with the Inklings at a pub. He would spend an entire evening in his room with the Inklings every week. 
And then four to eight times a year, he would take a walking retreat with five or six of his closest friends that was very focused on spiritual growth and intellectual understanding of what it meant to live Christianly. So he put his money where his mouth was. He didn't just say this was a priority. He lived it out. Uh, His initiative is based on this U2 spark, that idea of when you are with someone and it happens in conversation that you suddenly discover that the same obscure thing you're both really enthusiastic about. And you say, what? You two? I thought I was the only one. And Lewis talks about friends standing side by side looking at that same truth and that that is what draws them into this deep friendship. Uh, One of the other things Lewis is very strong on is the idea of mutual encouragement. And when we talk more about the Inklings, we'll delve into this. But it's that whole idea that he had a view of friendship as being a steward of the gifts that are in the other person. That part of your job as a friend is to encourage the gifts that God has put into that person to come out and for that person to take risks to use those gifts in a way that might change the world. And to know your friend well enough to have the right to be heard about those kinds of things. Lewis's humility is something that is very striking and also very surprising. Any of you who have worked in the academic world will know that humility is a concept that is in short supply. And Lewis, over and over again, people would remark about his humility and how other-focused he was. He was also willing to learn. We saw in the letter last week um, that he'd written to Roger Lancelot Green, who was one of his students at the time, that he was willing to learn from Green. He starts the letter off saying, you probably know a lot more about this particular thing than I do, which is remarkable for an Oxford don to say that to a student. It just shows his humility. Uh, One of the things that is also remarkable about Lewis is his committed prayer for his friends. He had a whole book of prayer lists, and uh, one of the things he had to work with his spiritual director on is eventually got so long that it would take him hours each day to get through his prayer list, but he couldn't bring himself to just cut someone off. So he had to work on a little cycle of uh, being able to do that. Lewis was also committed to the idea of having a spiritual mentor someone older than he was, deeper in his view in the faith, who could guide him with whom he could be vulnerable and honest and where they could help each other to grow in their spiritual life. He also believed strongly in being a mentor. There are literally scores of Oxford students who were mentored by Lewis. And interestingly, a lot of them are some of the leading lights of the intellectual Christian movement even today. Um, Those of you that heard John Lennox speak at Mirror Anglicanism, John Lennox is a former student of C.S. Lewis. Um, Alistair McGrath is kind of like a spiritual grandchild of Lewis. It's amazing when you trace back the influence that he had on so very many people. The other thing that you see is that Lewis was a friend that was in it for the long haul. He didn't sort of have relationships with a group of people then move on. Once he was committed, he continued to be committed. And you see that in his correspondence with these people where he corresponded with some of them over a period of about 30 years, which is pretty amazing. And then this whole priority of friendship that we talked about, that he lived out what he believed. And then some thoughts 
to think about for you. Lewis's theology of friendship can be one of those things that we just think, oh, that's so interesting. And then we just move right on with our lives. Or we can take the time to spend, I would suggest, 30 minutes and just reflect on these questions. Assess honestly how your friendships fit a scriptural theology of friendship. Pray for God's guidance and follow the spark of the Holy Spirit. We talked a little bit about how there are times, not every day certainly, but there are certain times when you sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in a relationship or in a contact. And one of the things Lewis did was when he sensed that, he went all in in the relationship. It's like in that letter that we had last week to Charles Williams, where he had never met Charles Williams. He had just read a book by him, and he was so blown away by the book that he wrote him this letter and basically said, I want to be your friend. Will you come visit me? (laughs) That's astounding. But what was even more astounding was that Williams had just read Lewis's book and was writing him the same letter going the other direction at exactly the same time. And that's where one of my favorite Williams quotes came from, where he says, my admiration for the staff work of the omnipotence increases daily. (laughs) But that idea of following that spark is so important. Sometimes we think, well, that would be awkward to do that. But if you believe the Holy Spirit is leading you, it's important to take some risk, to take the initiative about what you talk about, being vulnerable, asking to pray with people. Consider how God desires to use you in your friend's life. What are the gifts that you ought to be calling out and encouraging? And what are the things in you that you need people to call out and encourage? Assess your conversations. This can be painful. But one of the problems that many of us have is that we, we regress into sort of a narrow field of conversation where we talk about the same things And most of them are not very important things. And if you remember back to Mephipoia, that whole idea of the wonder of being able to have speech, to be able to talk, to describe things, to imagine things, to describe things that have not yet even been seen. Are you using your words? Just sounds like what you would say to a kindergartner, use your words. But are you using your words to build up and encourage? There is such power in words, and yet we just hold them inside and don't use them. Do you radically focus on others? For many of us, friendship is about getting our own needs met. But when you look at Jesus, that's not the way Jesus was at all. Jesus had a radical focus on others. We talked about from uh, the Last Supper discourses in John this idea of Jesus commanding his close friends to love one another as he had loved them, self-sacrificially. Another thing to think about is, do you have friends of different ages or backgrounds? We've gotten kind of in the American high school idea of friends. You have this little group of friends that are all your same age that look like you, and that's it. And I will tell you that if you have friends from other countries, other races, other backgrounds of different ages, it will enrich your life in ways that you cannot even imagine. Plus, you will be living out what we talked about at lunch today about the body of Christ. Also, think about, do you have a spiritual mentor? Are you being a spiritual mentor? 
part of that involves praying for people. Are you praying for your friends? And then regardless of what you give lip service to, how much priority are you actually putting on friendship in your life? And I don't suggest these questions to make anybody feel guilty or despair or anything like that, but just in the same way that if you don't go to the doctor, you can't get better, sometimes we have to stop and ask ourselves some hard questions in order to be able to grow. And I will guarantee you that if you move in the direction of Lewis's theology, which is drawn straight out of Scripture in this area, you will find more and more joy breaking out in your life because this is one of the ways that God has wired us to experience joy. All right, so we're going to make it a hard right turn now and jump into the power of story. And for those of you that are reading along in the book, uh, I would say this is the best chapter in that book. It's really good. This is one of Alistair McGrath's uh, subjects that's in his wheelhouse. So if you were at Mirror Anglicanism a couple of years ago when McGrath spoke, uh, he talked about the power of story and used Lewis as his example. And in case you've forgotten, Alistair McGrath holds the, uh, I never can pronounce this right, the Indrius, I think it is, Chair of Science and Religion at Oxford University. So he is a brilliant man, brilliant in religion and brilliant in science, which is not a combination that you very often find. He's not, <laughs> so. he's, Brian, he's not the one that came here and spoke. Um, not at St. Philip's. That's Colin Durier who wrote the handout that we have tonight. And he'll be back, God willing, at some point in the next year or two. So, what story are you living in? This whole idea of story is hugely important in understanding Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings. And for most of us, when we think story, we think about reading Goodnight Moon to a five-year-old. And don't get me wrong, I love Goodnight Moon. It's beautiful. There's a lot of cool stuff in it. But that is not what we mean by story here. Story is the idea of sub-creation, of inventing a new story, a new narrative, a new way of looking at things. And all of us live in a story. And if you want to think about story as being the set of assumptions on which you base your life, that will help you to begin to get a handle on this. I'm just going to read this. I'm going to be reading a lot tonight, not because I think you don't know how to read, but I think it helps to reflect when someone else is reading to you. So this is from McGrath. Each of, what does meta narrative mean? Uh, we're going to get to that. Okay. Hold on to that thought. Each of us naturally lives within a story a meta-narrative that shapes our lives, whether we're aware of this fact or not. Some of us live under the assumptions of the Western story of societal progress, that civilization, technologically, socially, or morally, is continually improving. Others live under the story of individual progress of the sort peddled on daytime talk shows, that the self is the most important thing there is, and that more or better information will organically produce better selves. Still others subscribe to the victim meta-narrative that their personal choices have little impact on the world they live in. So again, Lewis asks us, which story are you in? Have you chosen your story wisely? Have you challenged the story you tell yourself if it doesn't align with reality? And basically what he's talking about here is your worldview, the things that you tell yourself about what matters 
and how you achieve whatever your goal in life is, whether that's happiness or success or meaning, whatever it might be. And meta-narrative is the big fancy philosophical word, which basically means overarching worldview or overarching story. It's the, the narrative that takes in every aspect of your life and all the assumptions on which you're building. And that's going to be a word you're going to hear from time to time. But when, when we don't get disturbed by it, just because it's a big word, uh, it, it basically is just that idea of a comprehensive overarching worldview. So what Lewis is saying is that the questions that appear more pressing in our lives, such as how do I make myself more successful, are built on shaky assumptions from a story that may be distorting reality. And just as an example of this, we've talked about this before, but the unspoken meta-narrative in upper-middle-class America, particularly for students, is that you need to study very hard when you're in high school so that you can make very good grades and take more AP courses than you could ever imagine. Because if you take enough AP courses not to learn anything, they will help you to vault into a better college. And if you get into a really good college, and then you make really good grades while you're in that college, then you will get a really good job. And in that really good job, you will get paid lots of money and when you get paid lots of money, then you will be happy. <laughs> and it really is remarkable how much our culture in upper middle class America is built around that. And if you try to challenge that at your school or at a college or by having your child do something that's a little out of the box, just... Watch what happens. It's very interesting. But people become threatened when you challenge their assumptions. And for us as adults, we have other versions of this story where we branch off from that. We believe most of the first part of that success meta narrative. But we also believe if I just meet the right person and I marry that right person, then all my emotional needs will be met for the rest of my life and we will live happily ever after and ride off into the sunset together. And I don't mean to say that marriage is not a wonderful and beautiful institution, but we often idolize it in our society, and we try to put a spouse in the place that God is supposed to be. We also do this with career as adults. We think, if I could just get to that place in my career where I'm the boss, or when I make that salary level, or I can finally afford that boat, then everything is going to be all good. And these are the kinds of things that Lewis is saying we need to challenge, because most of the time, those culturally driven meta-narratives are false. So going back to the weight of glory, you might have noticed I'm quoting from the weight of glory a lot. Uh, I think it is one of Lewis's most important works if you've never read it, I commend it to you. You can find the PDF of the whole thing on the internet easily. Uh, but again, it's something I wouldn't read it at one sitting. I'd print it out and read a little bit and think about it because it's profound. So anyway, in the weight of glory, Lewis declares that our age is held captive. We are spellbound, caught up in a secular and secularizing meta narrative 
That is a secular meta-narrative, a story that leaves out God, that says God is not part of meaning or purpose. Being happy has nothing to do with God. Living a meaningful life has nothing to do with God. Leave God out of the equation that you build your life on. And if you must, go to church on Sunday, but don't let it influence anything in the rest of your life. And a secularizing meta-narrative is one that is uh, like an insidious disease that is infecting more and more and more and more. That as you begin to buy into a secular meta-narrative, it isolates you from the spiritual life and spiritual reality so that you become numb to it. So he says, we are told, well, okay, back to the meta-narrative. It says our destiny and good lie in this world, i.e. there is no other reality other than what we have right here, which, as a little aside, if you haven't read The Silver Chair and The Chronicles of Narnia lately, Go read it, because that's exactly what it's about. We are told and have come to believe that ideas of transcendent realms of worlds to come are simply illusions. Our educational system, Lewis notes with obvious sadness, has colluded with this modern myth that the sources and goals of human good are found solely on this earth. Now, I don't want you to hear something I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the world is bad. There are a lot of things that are good and beautiful and true in the world, even yet, because God created the world. But if you worship the world or what's in it, you are falling into the secular meta narrative and it is going to drive you away from the things of the kingdom of God. So, we looked at this particular quotation from The Weight of Glory way back when, when we were talking about Zainzut. So if you remember way back when we were talking about Zainzuk and that idea of longing, that idea, even as you go through the daily grind, that when you see that beautiful azalea bush in bloom, you just want to stop and just look at it and think, that is so beautiful. Or the sunset happens, or you hear some music and your heart swells, and there's something irrational going on. Uh, where you feel caught up out of your soul for just a minute. And that's what Lewis is saying, that we have these stabs and moments like that all the time that are pointing us toward this other reality. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing 
this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. And yet it is a remarkable thing that such philosophies of progress or creative evolution themselves bear reluctant witness to the truth that our real goal is elsewhere. And basically what he's saying is that we are seduced by this view in our culture that we can, through our own efforts, if we elect the right politicians and elect the right Supreme Court justices and we have laws that do the right things and we reform some of the little things that are wrong with our culture, that suddenly everything is going to be okay. Everyone's going to be happy. Nobody will shoot each other anymore. There won't be any of these problems and everybody will just be happy and singing the Barney song. (laughs) However, the problem with that is it's not true. And if you look back in the history of the world, every generation has thought that. And they try and they try and they try and they try and it doesn't work because there's a thing called original sin. And original sin means that we cannot perfect ourselves and the only hope that we have is in God. Now that doesn't mean we don't strive to make the world a better place, but we don't think that we can succeed and create this earthly utopia. That is a project that is doomed to failure. So when they want to convince you that earth is your home, notice how they set about it. They is the secularist. They begin by trying to persuade you that earth can be made into heaven thus giving a sop to your sense of exile in earth as it is. Next, they tell you that this fortunate event is still a good way off in the future, thus giving a sop to your knowledge that the fatherland is not here and now. Finally, lest your longing for the trans-temporal, i.e. the world beyond this world, should awake and spoil the whole affair, they use any rhetoric that comes to hand to keep out of your mind the recollection that even if all the happiness they promised could come to man on earth, yet still each generation would lose it by death, including the last generation of all. And the whole story would be nothing, as if we could believe that any social or biological development on this planet will delay the senility of the sun or reverse the second law of thermodynamics. And basically what he's saying is that these self-improvement efforts, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, create the utopian world, that those things are all doomed to failure. No matter how much success the United Way may have, the United Way is not going to solve the problems of the world. And when we believe that that is what we need to pour our lives into, we are doomed to despair. Because even though it may get a little bit better, It's just like when you're trying to plug a bursting dike. You patch one place, and as soon as you... This is kind of like the plumbing in my house. You you mess with one thing, and then somewhere else it goes... And that's what happens when we try to fix the problems of the world. It just doesn't work. Human wisdom is inadequate to do that. But if you look at our secular media today, and look at our culture, this myth of human progress and human perfectibility 
is all over the place. It is the story, the assumption, the meta-narrative that underlies much of what happens in our world today. And Lewis is saying that is just wrong. And he believed it was wrong way back in the 1930s because he saw the fruit of what was being sown in that time period that would blossom in our era. And it is absolutely remarkable how prophetic he is about that. So he wanted to think about how do we break the spell? How do we get out of this enchantment? How do we start realizing what these wrong assumptions are that are all around us. Because when you are swimming in the midst of them, it's very hard to be aware of what they are. And so part of his solution to that is this idea of myth. So you remember back the talk that Lewis and Tolkien had on Addison's Walk that led to Lewis's conversion, and their talk (laughs) about myth. The idea of myth as a major reality that was across time, across space, that engaged the heart with truth with a capital T. So this quotation is from McGrath. For most people, a myth, this is today, for most people today, a myth is a false story. Maybe a story that was once thought to be true or something that was actually invented to deceive people. For Tolkien and Lewis, though, myth means something like a grand narrative or narrated worldview. For Tolkien, the Gospels narrate a story of a larger kind, which embraces what is true, good, and beautiful in the great myth of literature, expressing it as a far-off gleam or echo of Evangelium, um, the Gospel, in the real world. Christianity brings to fulfillment the echoes and shadows of the truth that result from human questing and learning. So what he's saying here is that these stories point us to the gospel, that they are types and shadows, which we're going to get to in a minute, but they they point us in that direction, that the goodness and truth and beauty and self-sacrifice that we see in some of these stories helps us to understand in our hearts what these things mean, much more so than if we just read a dictionary definition of self-sacrifice. If you've watched The Lord of the Rings and you look at the burden that Frodo, the young hobbit, bears of carrying this ring that represents the sin of the world and you see it scarring his body and scarring his mind and stealing from him the life that he loved because he knows that this is so very important to save the world as he knows it, to complete this mission you have an understanding of self-sacrifice that goes far beyond what you would read in the dictionary. And Lewis believed that by captivating the imagination, you could break the secular spell. The imagination, in case you haven't figured this out, is one of the most important things to Lewis and Tolkien. It's part of what makes us human. It's part of what makes us in the image of God. And the imagination not only makes us in the image of God, but enables us to make in the image of God. It enables us to create. The imagination is what enables us to come up with things that have never been, to imagine them, to write about them, to create whole worlds that don't exist except through this imaginative power. And the great thing about imagination 
just as you saw in Mythopoeia, is you're not in prison in, in your imagination. None of the things that hold you back in this world hold you back because you can imagine them away. So this idea of captivating the imagination, Lewis believed a good story could captivate the imagination and sneak past the watchful dragons of dogmatic rationalism. Rationalism is the view that reason is the only way to live your life, that there is no transcendent, there's no God. It's just what you can kind of think of in your own mind. It's sort of the New York Times is the answer to all of our problems. And obviously that doesn't work very well. So Lewis says dogmatic rationalism, which is the insistence that the rational approach is the only way, is a recipe for doom for the human race. And that is part of the spell that he says needs to be broken through a new enchantment. And in writing to Roger Lancelin Green in 1838, this is actually the letter we looked at last week when Roger Green was still a student at Oxford, Lewis mentions exploring the interplanetary science fiction story as a mythology that could be harnessed to convey the truth of the Christian worldview. And this is a really cool story that I'm just going to skim the top of. But Lewis and Tolkien were talking in Lewis's rooms one night, and they were lamenting the state of affairs of how the world is under this enchantment that's not a good one. And they were talking about how can we break this? And they started talking about stories. And then they said, well, the problem is no one is writing stories like that. And then they kind of looked at each other and they said, well, maybe it is up to us to write these kinds of stories. And so then they started talking about, well, what kind of stories could we write? And they came up with the idea of interplanetary science fiction. And then they came up with the idea of time travel. And then they literally flipped a coin and Lewis got the interplanetary science fiction, and Tolkien got the time travel. And Lewis's space trilogy came from that. The Lord of the Rings came from Tolkien. If they had never had that conversation, none of those books would ever have been written. And the great thing is that both of those series brilliantly captured just exactly what they were talking about. So Lewis wrote three works of science fiction to show up secular evolutionary optimism as lightweight and naive and highlight the darker side of human nature. The ideas he develops are interesting, but even more interesting is the medium he uses. Not a sustained logical argument, sorry for that typo, which tells why secular humanism has problems, but a winsome story that shows the same thing. We live in a culture where we've got a bunch of talking heads that are all yelling at each other all the time. And no one really wants to hear any of that. But a good story, people are up for a good story. And Lewis and Tolkien realized that early on in McGrath, when he was talking at Mere Anglicanism, uh, about how to engage a secular culture, a post-Christian culture. He said, this is the great insight that we have to capture. The most people, particularly in the South, if you say, let me tell you about Jesus, or let me tell you about Christianity, they'll say, I know all about that. Christians are hypocrites. They're judgmental. If you want to stay my friend, you just shut up about that. And that is sort of hard to come back from. But story 
is a whole different medium for that, where you can invite people to things, you can read books with people, you can talk about ideas, and you can do, just as Lewis said, slip past the watchful dragons, and their heart begins to respond before they realize what is happening. And the reason their heart responds is that even people that say those things are still made in the image of God, and their hearts are restless until they find their rest in Christ. So, types and shadows. We could have so much fun with this, um, but we're just going to scratch the surface of it. Types and shadows are a concept deeply rooted in the Christian faith. And the idea of a type, this is not the way we usually think of type. When we think of type, we usually think Roquefort is a type of blue cheese, as is Gorgonzola, and we mean a sort of by that. That is not what this means. Type means more like a symbol of something, Um, a, a lesser symbol of something that's greater. And so in the book of Hebrews... Uh, which if you've never read the book of Hebrews all at once, please do that at some time in your life. It is gorgeous, and it it will inspire you. But one of the great things about it is it talks about how everything in the Old Testament was a preparation pointing to Jesus, and that there are these types and shadows, whether it's the the tabernacle and the wilderness, or the temple itself, or Melchizedek, the priest of Salem, or the priest in the temple, um, all of those things are pointing to this ultimate reality that's finally spectacularly revealed in Jesus Christ. And what Lewis says is that the whole world is just laden with types and shadows, and we just walk by them every day, and we don't even realize it. But that these types and shadows are God's voice whispering to us through nature, through other people, through literature, that there is an ultimate reality that is beyond what we experience. And I thought a little bit about doing a Plato's Cave experiment tonight, um, and I decided that that might scare some people off. (laughs) So I'm just going to describe it for you. But I had thought about taking six of you and tying you to a row of chairs and putting you over in this little corner here, How many of you have ever read Plato's Cave, Plato's Allegory of the Cave? All right. Well, if you are scuba diving or snorkeling, part of your assignment is to find that on the Internet and read it. It's very short. Um, The versions you'll find on the Internet are about three pages long. But basically what Plato says is I want you to imagine a cave. So imagine a cave. We're just going to say that arch over there is the cave. And imagine it's much deeper going that way, and there's no outlet. It's pitch dark on the other end. And imagine about eight feet into the cave, there is a row of chairs or a pew or whatever you want to call it, and we've got six people sitting there. They're chained to it. They're chained at the head, at the chest, and at the feet, so they can't move. So all they can do is look back straight into the darkness. They can't move. They can't see anything else. And they've been that way their whole lives. They have no memory of anything other than that. But one of the things that they notice in their captivity is that each day something happens where some light comes into the cave, which would be the sun coming up. 
And they notice that this happens on a regular basis. And so they talk about that. They might even give that a name, like light or something like that. And then they notice that there are certain shapes that go by. So they might notice something that bounces, that has tall ears. Um, Then they see the shadow of it going by, um, that the light illumines the shadow on the back wall of the cave. And they might give a name to that thing. They might say, that's a rabbit. And there might be a few other things that they give names to. And they see this day after day, and they have the same things that they see, and they give names to them. And that's reality. That is complete reality. That is their world. All of their presuppositions are built around that. And then one day, one person gets loose, and they go out of the cave, and they come out, and there's light and there are trees, and there are animals, and there are people talking in a blue sky, and water, and all of these other things. And then that person goes back and says to the other people, guys, there's a whole world out there. There's a whole reality out there. All we're seeing is shadows. And the other people, what do you think they're going to tell them? You're crazy. You're not just crazy. You're cray-cray. You are so... Well, I'm not going to use any other terms for that, but you are out of your mind. And the reason for that is that their experience of the shadows has blinded them to any other possibility. And what Lewis is saying is that we live in shadowlands. That's a word that's going to show up in a lot of his work. Uh, We live in shadowlands, but that we have types and shadows, not unlike the rabbit hopping, uh, the shadow of the rabbit hopping, but ones that are actually imbued with some truth that God has put into creation as pointers. But we need to be aware of them, and that part of the way that we do that is to fire up our imagination again and to look for those types and shadows And Lewis and Tolkien take this a step farther, and they say that creating new imagined types and shadows, new and imagined stories that are full of these pointers will engage our hearts in such a way that truth is revealed to them in a way that we might never have understood that truth without that story. And that brings us to Narnia. Narnia is an amazing creation. And it's a very surprising creation. One of the remarkable things about Lewis's genius is that not only was he a famous academic author who still, if you're doing graduate work on Paradise Lost or graduate work on uh, the courtly love tradition, his works are still part of the curriculum. Not only was he famous in that, and then famous, famous as a theological writer and winning awards for that and winning awards for other types of fiction, he then wrote award-winning children's stories. And I will defy you to find any other human being in the history of the world who wrote brilliantly in all of those different genres. Now, for an Oxford Don who is regarded as a genius intellect, to write children's stories is a very risky proposition. But Lewis chose to do it because of what we were just talking about, this whole idea that he thought that story 
could capture things that couldn't be captured just in writing about theology. And Narnia was, for him, a vehicle to communicate truth. But it was risky. He'd never written children's stories. Um, His colleagues would laugh at him and did for doing that. They thought it was ridiculous. And they teased him mercilessly about it. But he did it anyway. And the interesting thing is how these stories came together. Lewis says the first thing that happened is one day he was just imagining things and the vision of a fawn (laughs) carrying an umbrella in the snow while carrying some parcels under his arm came into his mind. And he didn't really know why, but that just came into his mind. And so he set that aside but didn't forget about it. Then, during the Blitz in London, the British government evacuated children out of London to uh, keep them safe. And so four children were sent to Lewis's bachelor household in Oxford uh, to be taken care of. And so these four children moved into Lewis's home, the Kilns, and while they were there, they found a wardrobe in the attic, and they asked him about this wardrobe. And Lewis's imagination somehow connected the four children, the wardrobe, the fawn with the umbrella and the snowstorm and the parcels, and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe grew out of that. And one of the things that is very easy to miss about the Narnia stories is that they are brilliant. One of the reasons they're brilliant is they work perfectly well if you're a six-year-old. You can read them as a six-year-old, and they are hugely satisfying. And children's hearts are moved by these stories. But the other thing that's remarkable is you can read them as an adult and see all of these layers and be completely caught up in the storyline as an adult. But even more, if you are a Christian adult, you can look at these stories and you see not only the beauty, truth, and goodness, and the Christian meta-narrative, but you see profound spiritual truth being illustrated. And as if that were not enough, you could go one step farther, as was discovered just a couple of years ago by a Catholic intellectual named Michael Ward, who wrote a book called Planet Narnia. And what Ward discovered was that Lewis, the medievalist, and we're going to talk more about that in a while, Lewis, the medievalist, who was fascinated with interplanetary cosmology, um, sort of as we saw in that science fiction trilogy, Lewis was fascinated with the medieval view of the seven planets and the way that certain characteristics and emotions were associated with each of those seven planets. And Ward researched the Chronicles of Narnia while he was working on Lewis's medieval cosmology and suddenly realized that each one of the Chronicles of Narnia represents a different planet in the medieval cosmology. And at first you think, oh, right. But people who are way smarter than I am, I am not an expert on medieval cosmology, believe me, have said that Michael Ward is absolutely right. And this lay unexplored and unknown in these stories until about five years ago. So it is a remarkable work of genius. 
one of the other things that's really interesting here, going back to the meta narrative idea, think about how Lewis constructs this story. The children go into Narnia. Lucy sort of falls into Narnia. Edmund goes into Narnia to harass Lucy, not really with a great motive. But when Lucy goes into Narnia, she gets one story, one meta-narrative of what's going on in Narnia, that Aslan is the king who's been away for a long time, that they're under the oppression of the white witch who has made it winter and never Christmas, and that the world of Narnia is enthralled to this evil. So that's the story she comes back with. Edmund goes into exactly the same place. He meets the queen of Narnia, who tells him that she is the rightful monarch of Narnia, and she can make him rich and famous as the prince of Narnia and feed him all the Turkish delight that he will ever want to eat. And so he comes back with that meta-narrative. Now, they've both been to the same place, but those two meta-narratives are mutually exclusive. And so the whole story plays out with discovering which one of those actually is true and what results from believing each of them. And it is a great way of looking at our culture, of looking at the Christian meta-narrative versus the secular meta-narrative believed by people that are walking the same streets on the earth and then look at what are the results of each meta-narrative. Does the Christian faith lead to despair and broken relationships or does it lead to joy and purposeful living? Does the secular view lead to despair? Well, I'll let you draw your own conclusions about that. But Lewis is not doing that accidentally. The other thing is this whole idea of truth. What is true? There are different things being said that can't all be true. How do you know what is true? How do you know whom to trust? Then, this whole idea of wonder and discovery. The book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as you read it, it is imbued with wonder. That as they discover more and more things about Narnia, they're amazed at how beautiful and how cool and how deep this whole experience is and how magical animals that talk, all sorts of things that fill them with wonder and awe and discovery. And then this whole idea of Aslan the lion, uh, who is called not a tame lion, but a good lion with capital G. It's not an accident that Lewis uses that word good. It's goodness, truth, and beauty are going to resonate all through the Chronicles of Narnia because for Lewis, those are some of the primary types and shadows that are pointers to God. Then the whole idea of the people that are on Aslan's side are experiencing freedom and joy and love Whereas the people that are serving the white witch are in despair and slavery. And it just gets worse and worse and worse as the story goes on. So the medieval cosmology behind all of this is also really important because 
What Lewis is trying to say is there are layers upon layers upon layers of wonder. And remembering way back to Mythopoeia, remember where Tolkien says, I will not tread your dusty path and flat, denoting this and that by this and that. The idea that there is no meaning, that everything's just flat and void and all of that. And what Lewis is saying is no. The world is full of wonder. The world is full of beauty, but there, it's marred. But those things in the world that are beautiful and good and true are there to point you to the one, with a capital O, the one who is good and beautiful and true. So some questions to ponder. How is your sense of wonder? How often do you stop and just think, that is beautiful. How did that happen? How often does that happen to you? Or are you stuck in the, so many of us are, and myself included, like the hamster on the little wheel. We're just running all the time. The hamster is not experiencing wonder, other than maybe wondering when he's going to get fed. Um, There's no wonder. The other thing to ponder is what story are you really living in? It's very easy as people who go to church to think, well, of course I'm living in the Christian story. But modern man is, and modern woman, uh, we are very gifted at compartmentalizing and rationalizing. And we can think we're in one story, but when we actually go and look at the way we live our lives and how we spend our time and what we think about and what we read and all of that, we discover that either we're not in the story we thought we were or we've got a foot in two different stories. And being split... Being double-minded is something that scripture tells us leads to disaster. And then lastly, where are you experiencing joy? Joy is, uh, as Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. And as Christians, we should be experiencing joy. That doesn't mean that you necessarily have circumstances that make you happy. Happiness and joy are not the same thing. Joy is, flows out of a deep understanding of the sovereignty and the goodness and the truth and beauty of God and his kingdom. And the more that you are able to understand that and then see the types and shadows when they appear or see when the Holy Spirit is at work or when the kingdom of God breaks out in a relationship or in a worship service or in something else, those moments of joy are important not only to recognize, but also to cultivate. So uh, next week, we're going to delve a little bit more into this. There is a fabulous handout back there uh, that is by my friend Colin Durier uh, about the theology of fantasy and Lewis and Tolkien. It's a little bit long, so if you're on the beach, don't worry with it. Um, If you are snorkeling, I would encourage you to read page one and see if page one gets you And if it gets you, just keep going as far as you can. If you're scuba diving, please read the whole thing because it's so unbelievably worth it. So let me uh, close us with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together tonight. We thank you that you have built this world in a way that is full of goodness and truth and beauty and where it is loaded with types and shadows of the joy and reality of your kingdom, 
not the kingdom of this world, but the heavenly kingdom. Lord, we confess to you that we so often are like those people tied up in the cave, just staring at the shadows and living in drudgery. I pray you would pour your Holy Spirit out on our hearts and our minds, that you would baptize and fire our imaginations, that we would live in such a way that we rejoice in who you are. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.